My other question would be like, how much protein? Cause that is confusing too. Everyone's saying different number, you know, amounts. It's a lot more than maybe we think we need. That's confusing. Well, I eat about 135 grams a day. Some days 130 and Kristen, I think is 150. Yeah. Okay, that is a lot of protein for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't count a single ounce of plant protein. I do eat some plant proteins, but I don't count them. I don't see them as really all that relevant because at the end of the day, as we age, we have something called anabolic resistance. Our ability to make use of protein gets lowered every year that we age. So the more we can eat, it's not like you're actually necessarily synthesizing all 150 grams. Welcome to Functional Moms Podcast lifestyle medicine for women over 40. Let's age on our own terms. We are beyond excited to have Kristen Johnson and Maria Claps on the show today. They are the duo behind the widely popular Wise and Well Instagram page, which teaches women how to maximize health as they age with content surrounding perimenopause, menopause, and hormone replacement therapy. Kristen and Maria are plain spoken friends and practitioners who share a passion for women's health, especially at midlife. This episode is for you if you are a woman and you're late 30s, 40s, or 50s, and you want some education surrounding perimenopause and menopause. Unwanted weight gain, muscle loss, skin elasticity decline, diminished brain function, erratic or missed periods, disrupted sleep, racing hurts and thoughts. These are just some of the symptoms that Kristen and Maria are helping women with. Kristen and Maria are both menopausal and they've refined the art and science of thriving as midlife women based on both clinical and personal experience. Kristen is is a board certified nutritionist. She is also a married mom with three boys and Maria is a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and she is a mom of four boys, a married mom of four boys, I should say. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kristen and Maria. You have been such a resource for us and so many women are quite frankly desperate for help with their symptoms and for education about their bodies. Perimenopause and menopause is treated very lightly by conventional medicine and swept under the rug by society in general, and you can see the frustration of women wanting more support and symptom relief. So my first question for both of you is actually, if you can explain the phases of perimenopause, menopause, and uh, postmenopause. Great question. Menopause happens on one day in a woman's life, and it's just that one day where she reaches the 12-month mark without having a period. The years surrounding that, leading up to that, where we're starting to feel symptoms and feel some changes in the body is perimenopause. So prior to that, you're not, in, unless it's premature, unless you go into menopause prematurely, you're not perimenopausal at 20 and or 30. You're more likely perimenopausal, most women like in their 40s, possibly late 30s, right? So anything else like prior to that earlier in life, that's just premenopausal. And then we have postmenopause is really- Life after. <laughs> day, yeah, day one after that day that you are like, marked on the calendar. Oh, it's been a year since I've had a period. And with the perimenopause, I guess that's where I get confused sometimes because some people are like, it's like two years. Some people are like five. I've even heard it's like 10 plus years. Like what? 
is the truth. Probably average is around four. I mean, it's obviously very individual for mm -hmm. women. Average, I would say, is about four. Yeah, okay. I think the medical journals say anywhere from two to 10, but yeah, it's not really that long. But you can start seeing symptoms way earlier before you're actually in perimenopause, or is that? Um, no, that would usually be the start of it. So for a lot of women, the first symptom might be cycle changes. And I think it's really hard to use that as a benchmark right now because we're seeing a lot of metabolic derangement that's then triggering cycle changes for women in their 30s. And so you're seeing these like 35 year olds like, oh my God, is this perimenopause? Probably not. You're probably under eating. You're probably over exercising. You're probably not sleeping. You know, there's other things going on that can affect the cycle. So that's the one thing that, you know, we're trying to kind of decouple the cycle directly from being the harbinger of perimenopause. But beyond that, it's more, and I should say, not every woman has symptoms. So that's the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind is there's just too many people focusing on symptoms as being the sign. And Marie and I have worked with literally thousands of women and we have some who make it to 57 still cycling and not a single symptom. You know, kind of oh. keep that in mind that symptoms may or may not happen. What are the more common ones? It's going to be, you know, mood changes, brain fog. Um, I used to joke, I could not get my day done without to list to tell me what to do, right? Yeah. Um, that was probably my first sign. And again, we all can feel like that as busy moms with kids and things going on. Um, right. But when it becomes to the point where you're like, I literally don't know what I'm doing day to day because I cannot remember what I told myself I was going to do 10 minutes ago. That's a pretty good sign. Sleep disruptions, another huge sign. You know, you're going to see the typical skin changes. You might see belly fat migration. So a lot of women don't realize that as these hormones are changing, our sort of growth hormones, our insulin signalers and stuff are losing their GPS signal. Most women, we usually keep it on our hips and butt. Perimenopause starts to see it kind of float up to the belly. What else, Maria? We've got so many different possible. I mean, hot flashes are another, you know, very common. This, you're having a hot flash. You're probably late age perimenopause. But again, my, both Maria and I got out of or into menopause without ever having hot flashes. You know, what was interesting is as you're speaking, like my personal experience, like I don't even know. I was going through a divorce and I have four kids and they were very little and I was moving into to like my own place and it was such a nerve wrecking season in my life and I was in my mid 40s and I just started realizing like I haven't gotten my period in like a long mm. time and but you know I had things to do I had to figure out how I was going to do this life and I never got my period but I was like, I think my gynecologist, like, I was like, what is going on? And she's like, well, you're going under a lot. It could just be your stress. Like, and it could have been truly. I mean, right. yeah. we see girls in their really late thirties, early forties. Yeah. And I never got it again. Like that was it. And that, you know, I think that's the biggest thing is there's like an inflection point in our forties, right? Whether it's kind of a, a sunset on our careers, you know, we're reaching that point. We're not the young gun in an office environment or something. Um, or whether you're working or not, you know, we've got lots of commitments. We might be taking care of elderly parents that are starting to kind of lose their independence and autonomy. We've got kids who need us of varying things. I mean, Marie and I had our kids young. We were in our 40s. Our kids were late teens, early 20s. Like we lucked out a little bit, but we're seeing more and more women who have young kids in their 40s. It's a busy season of life. So, you know, stress is something that, again, as I mentioned, you could have cycle changes in your 30s that has nothing to do with perimenopause. A lot of times that stress could be emotional could be physio 
physical, could be just perceived, you know, that sort of stuff can't be. So you, it was like, you had it all at once, right? You had what was probably natural cycle changes starting. And then you throw in the stress and your ovaries are just like, dude, I'm done, right? Like I have to keep Raquel alive. The last thing I need to do is worry about making sure she can still procreate. So they went to sleep. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so interesting that there's just so many variations of all of this. And I guess maybe that's where the confusion comes in because nobody really knows, you know, what exactly their story is going to look like. I guess that seems different for everybody. Yeah. I think one of the things Marie and I get frustrated too is right now the messaging is all focusing on what is your story, right? What are the symptoms? What are you feeling? And you just nailed it. It's so variable. That's all pretty irrelevant. It really truly is irrelevant. The reality is none of us get through this life as women without going through menopause, period, dot. So now let's figure out what are we going to do, right? What does it mean? What is happening? What is it that we need to pay attention to aside from symptoms or no symptoms? And that's what Marie and I kind of think is the bigger imperative. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, tell us about that, like what you would recommend then for people that are are trying to navigate all this. And and I will say, you know, just from my experience, just going to my, I'm 47. So, and I think I'm probably in the perimenopausal part of my life. And I would say just going to my regular GYN, like there just wasn't much that, you know, I had complaints <laughs> of some symptoms. They said, you want to go on the birth control pill. And that was sort of where it left me. And I was like, no, you know, so, and I, we love your Instagram page. Like I find so much good information on there. It's so helpful. But yeah. So where would we start here? Uh, where would we start in terms of, of just- just understanding, you want to understand the deeper imperatives, right? So yeah, for all of us that really aren't getting any guidance here, you know, and like you said, like not getting so hung up on the symptoms, but more like what should we be doing? Sure. So we started this podcast with like defining what postmenopause and perimenopause and menopause is, right? So it's really, really important to understand that, you know, that the ovaries are winding down, right? They're becoming senescent. They are just not going to be producing eggs anymore, right? You're running out of eggs really from the day that we're born essentially. And what does that mean beyond symptoms? Because like Kristen said, some women have very, very few symptoms. They should all, all the people that think that they are skating by should come and speak to us and the 62, 63, you know, year old women that are like, I mean, I I felt really good and like, kind of like, I'm not doing so good anymore. You know, whether it's vaginal dryness or heart palpitations or ridiculously high, you know, rising cholesterol. So it's really just important to understand what is it that those hormones that are pretty much gone, estradiol, that's our main estrogen, and progesterone, what does it mean now for my overall health, my overall metabolic health? And, you know, those impacts are very, very serious, whether you're not, you have symptoms. So we think about things like like osteoporosis. You know, unfortunately, you know, we start to lose, you know, our bone health starts to decline, particularly if we are not eating well, not eating real food, not meeting our protein, not, you know, stimulating the bone and the muscle, right? Getting busy, we start to lose bone. 30s, I believe. But why is that, Maria? So like explain the whole connection between our hormones beyond fertility. From the moment we're pubescent, to the day we die or the day we lose them in menopause, what are our hormones doing? Because it's not just a menstrual cycle. Oh, right. So that's actually the bigger (laughs) point of what I'm trying to get to. So your bones have estrogen receptors. Your optic nerve has estrogen receptors. Your colon has estrogen receptors. Your immune cells have estrogen receptors. What does that mean? A receptor is like this little satellite dish and the the hormone goes into the satellite dish and it kicks off genomic processes. It just kicks off other, you know, 
beneficial good things in the body. Unfortunately, when a lot of us or some of us think about estrogen receptors, we think of estrogen receptor positive cancer, but we have receptors and this is how hormones work. They don't work. They don't just kind of load around in the bloodstream. They have to go in dock into a receptor, which is on usually on the surface or the nucleus of the cell. And that is how hormones work. So when we lose those, that hormone signaling to the bones, to the cardiovascular system, to the lining of the blood vessels, the endothelium, you know, we just suffer really poor health impacts. Again, this is independent of whether or not you have classic perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms. Yeah. So no matter what, our whole body is being affected by this process. 100%. And unfortunately, it is not hardly ever, I think maybe starting, it's hardly ever talked about. Like I saw a, I saw maybe you ladies know Dr. Lisa Moscone right? Alzheimer's brain researcher talks a lot about estrogen has like really brought a lot of good information to the forefront. Uh, and someone, some smart person, like some thinking person said, should we do HRT even if we don't have symptoms? And her response was kind of vague. She was like, HRT works best in the presence of symptoms. You're so First close. Of all, you didn't really answer the question. <laughs> you didn't answer the question, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, of course it does because you feel this beneficial effect and you've gotten rid of the symptoms, but you completely glossed over the question by saying that. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know, it's just, it's almost always talked about in the presence of symptoms. You get it if you have symptoms. Yes. You don't. And the thing it. is, is do you feel osteoporosis happening? No, you don't feel cognition changing and dementia coming in and tau proteins depositing in the brain. You don't feel that. You don't feel your heart muscles starting to stiffen, right? So that's why Maria and I get so irate over this focus on symptoms or that HRT is only needed for women who are suffering. I'm like, why did we let them get to the point of suffering to begin with? That's ridiculous. Right. You know, yeah. the physiology is not unique to just the women who have symptoms. Every single one of us with the menstrual cycle and ovaries are getting genomic signals throughout our entire lifespan that are remodeling our bones, keeping all these tissues healthy, you know, providing collagen into the matrix of our ligaments in order to retain their flexibility. All of these things are happening to us all the time. There's nothing special about the women who have symptoms, right? So that means that once we all lose them, because we're all gonna, we lose those hormones, we're all going to lose those same genomic signals. So do we wait until a woman is 72 and has early onset dementia? No. Why are we waiting until there's a problem? That's, I think, the biggest thing that we have a problem with. Yeah, I loved, I watched an interview that you were, oh, I forget, it wasn't really an interview. You guys um, had a live on Instagram and you said how you found it interesting. Like they would say, oh, I think uh, you mentioned something about a reading and it was like the reading set 20, but that's normal for a 50 something year old. Uh, yeah, yes. it's normal, but it's not optimal because what are you comparing like that's like the lowest standard right well and if you look yep. at a lab paperwork right they always have the ranges and for something like estradiol they'll have like follicular phase or luteal phase or whatever or pregnant woman and menopausal woman and i'm like wait a minute we're all women like if i was 27 and didn't have a period even if i said i want no children or i was done having children i was i was done at 32 maria you were done at late 20s or early 30 30 okay so we're done if Maria and I had lost our menstrual cycle at 30 and 32, every freaking red flag in the book would have been raised to the top 
of the flagpole and doctors would have said, oh, this is not good. Why? Not because we needed to have more children, but because our menstrual cycle is a vital sign. So why is it okay for women to age with the loss of one entire vital sign? It just makes absolutely no sense to us. So, you know, you look at that physiology, you understand, okay, just because it's normal does not mean, you know, it's normal for a menopausal woman without hormones. Sure. But is that, do we want to be menopausal women without hormones? I don't think so. Once women realize what these hormones were doing to benefit them their whole lives, they start to make friends with them in a whole different way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and our whole goal too with this podcast is we want to look and feel our best as we age and we want to try to simplify it. I know it's really complicated in a lot of ways, um, but we really appreciate you. Yeah. Coming on today to just help us kind of get to the bottom of this a little bit. And we are curious then on your thoughts on the hormone replacement therapy. I know you guys talk a lot about about that. And um, we just want to know your take on it because I guess there is still all that fear language out there about, you know, it causing cancer, frankly, I guess is what people think. Yeah. So one of our favorite things to say about that, you know, granted, there are some four pharmacological products that were brought onto the market, labeled hormone replacement therapy and sold to women as if they were hormones. Those were endocrine disruptors. They were synthetic. They were foreign to the human body. And just like putting anything in the body that's foreign to it, they caused problems and disruption. Unfortunately, people then extrapolated the results from those really poor studies who, by the way, used very older women, women with diabetes, who had smoking histories, who were nurses and had, you know, massive circadian rhythm disruption who weren't pre-skiing for cancer. I mean, all sorts of problems with the studies. But what they did is they extrapolated that and they said, okay, hormones are dangerous. And Maria and I are like, really? Because if you've ever carried a child to term, your hormone levels were in the tens of thousands. And did you come out of pregnancy without cancer? Because we're pretty sure pregnancy didn't kill you based on the high levels of hormones. So that piece of it is very frustrating because what truly is hormone replacement therapy? or what should be looked at truly as the only hormone replacement therapy is using hormones that are molecularly identical to that which we produced in our body and they are presented to us to mimic the same physiology that we had when we had a menstrual cycle. That is safe, right? But calling birth control, you being told... Kristen, to go on birth control because you were mildly symptomatic, literally they were offering you endocrine disruptors. Your risk of breast cancer would have skyrocketed had you done that. Wow. And it's funny. I actually have a family history of breast cancer as well. Like my mom had it in her early fifties. So it is funny that, yeah, they have no problem offering birth control as an option. And they're going to tell you that HRT is unsafe. And, you know, my mom had breast cancer in her forties and now my oncological group, you know, I'm followed because I'm high risk and all these things that they want to say. They're thrilled that I take hormones because they're like, look, you're maintaining a very regular, moderated, managed hormonal milieu in your body. It's protective. But that message is difficult to get out there because we have a lot of profit-driven interests right now that are sort of distracting from the real issues of what's going on. I have a question. Basically, how often should someone have their hormones tested and what tests would you recommend? So we like women to do a blood test and the blood test can test like estradiol and progesterone and uh, follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, and maybe D. DHEA as well, and sex hormone binding globulin. So that, and we also like the Dutch complete test because we can see how hormones are metabolizing and that's, it's definitely important. 
So how often? It kind of depends on age and like whether or not you're on hormones. But I would say for women in their 40s, I would say at least annually. But for women that are in their 40s and like really symptomatic, you might want to test FSH and say estradiol, maybe a little bit more frequently, maybe like twice a year. And when she says blood test, we have to say this now. We mean venous blood. We mean going to the doctor or lab and getting a blood draw. And the reason why we have to kind of explain that nuance is because there's a lot of great market opportunities directed at midlife women right now. And you can test your hormones at home, ladies. No. So what these are are blood spot kits. They're finger pricks, right? And when we get a blood draw from our arm, we're getting venous serum blood. When we get a blood draw from our finger, we're taking capillary blood. And they're two different things for one. But also a lot of times when we have to get capillary blood, someone will maybe squeeze their fingertip a little bit. What happens is it mixes with something called interstitial fluid, just the fluid in our tissue cells and it dilutes the blood. It's not an accurate measurement for blood volume hormones. And we don't think even the Dutch or any dried urine testing is an accurate measurement for blood volume or volume of hormones in the system. So you just look at blood. I mean, look at, you know, basic blood. A lot of doctors, I mean, Maria was given a battery of tests. I was completely gaslit and told, you're too young, you don't need any tests. There's no reason to test you. And then it was that once I kept pushing, it became the, well, it doesn't really matter. You're going into menopause anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, we can tell ladies, go get a blood test, get it once a year, get it twice a year. You know, if you're in the throes of it, get it quarterly. That's an easier thing said than done because a lot of doctors are just going to say, not interested. You know, you don't need it. So like, for example, I'm 57. Is the whole, you know, getting tested for hormone thing done for me? Like, or? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. Are you on hormones, Raquel? No. Oh, um, I mean, I would do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you. I mean, you'd still like FSH, what Maria was just saying, that's going to be the more important hormone to check. Again, you're going to be flagged as normal. What is FSH? So it's a brain hormone, okay? And it's your brain. So the brain is literally the hypothalamus pituitary, right? Tells the ovaries to make their hormones. It tells the thyroid to make its hormones. So the brain sends out signals, okay? So when the brain sends out FSH, um, it is telling the ovaries to, it's because because it senses low amount of hormone in the bloodstream, right? And so it's kind of sending the signal as saying to the ovaries, make hormones, make hormones, make hormones. So when it's high, right, that means you're essentially you're menopausal. So we suspect, you know, if I had to guess your FSH is 50s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Yeah. When, I mean, when you get to be about 20, 25 or so consistently, and this is why I said previously, get FSH tested, you know, twice a year in your 40s if you can. Um, but when you consistently see FSH, you know, above 20 or 25, you're, you're even if you're still menstruating, you're you're deeply perimenopausal. You're you're pretty close to menopause at that point. Okay. And, and then what do you do with that right. information? Right. Because we have a lot of tests, like a lot of tests available to consumers, whether it's we get them ourselves or a doctor recommends them. It's like, what do you do with that information? That's a really important question to ask and to answer it well, then you know what you do with that information is if you want to do hormone replacement therapy, that's time to start at that point once you hit about a 20 or a 25 with FSH. Okay. Because I didn't know if it was like, oh, am I too late? Because I've been like, you know, when is it too late? Like for my mom, is it too late? It's too late for my mom who's 77. Not necessarily. I think the biggest thing, so so there's a great, great study that does offer what's called the timing hypothesis. Okay. And what they're essentially saying is that hormone restoration or, you know, limiting the chronic disease risk brought on due to menopause is best accomplished when started 
ejaculated earlier. That's what the study says, okay? It's saying the women who start in their 40s and 50s are going to benefit the most from restoring their hormones and creating a milieu that re-triggers those genomic signals and provides the protections from these diseases of aging. The study didn't say that starting later is dangerous. In many instances, what it says is starting later might have a net neutral effect on one thing, cardiovascular disease risk. That's all it said. It didn't say that these women wouldn't benefit. So let's say you're in your late 60s and you're still in a great partnered relationship and you're sexually active and you've got a really dry vagina. There's no reason not to consider estrogen for you, okay? But the problem is, is that these changes start happening in our 40s with respect to the heart, with respect to our arteries with respect to that whole vascular system. Again, whether or not you have symptoms, whether or not you bottom out, it might be 10 years of perimenopause, who knows? But we do know that once we start to lose signals, one of the very first systems in the body to start to take the hit is the cardiovascular system. What that means is that by the time, let's say you get to 63 and you're like, hey, it's not too late for me. I'd actually like some hormones. You do need to sort of check under the hood and see, look, is your cardiovascular system stable? You know, do you have a lot of plaque built up? Do you have a lot of soft plaque floating around? Do you have inflammation that we need to address? How's your blood sugar regulation? Is it overglycated so that, you know, you might be at more of a higher stroke risk, those sorts of things. So it's not that it's not on the table any longer. It's more kind of, well, now we need to sort of make sure that we're putting it into a healthy vessel and that we don't sort of overstimulate a cardiovascular system that might be tacked. That's it. Otherwise, not a single study went past the age of 60 for women. So it's not, again, that there's evidence that it's dangerous it's that we have no study, nothing showing whether or not it happened. What we do know is Maria and I have clients in their 70s who started HRT and are thriving. And they're like, I'm taking the walks with my book group and I'm going up to the top of the mountain and they're all staying down below. You know, I'm active and traveling and going and seeing my great grandkids in New Orleans and staying up late and having a wonderful time. I'm thriving with how I eat. My gut is on point. My bones have gone from osteopenic back to normal. So yeah, Yes, you can do it. But again, if we wait too long, and 57 is not too long, 70s, late 60s, not necessarily too long, more again, caution, right? Just exercise caution. But yes, you can absolutely do HRT. And the other thing is that a lot of the medical societies have always said there's no reason to stay on it after the age of 60 either, which is a bunch of absolute crap. There's no reason to come off it. And now they're starting to admit, well, gosh, gee, we take these women off it and their bones suddenly go brittle again, or their hot Mm. flashes come back. Oh, for them, will allow them to stay on it. But if you don't have any of these symptoms, you probably don't need it after the age of 60. Whereas Marie and I take the position, you know, based on our providers, you'll pry it out of our cold dead hands. Like we're never giving up our HRT. (laughs) Now, would it be different for like, you know, Kristen is 47, I'm 57. Like if we were to do HRT, would it be different for me than for her? Are there different or does, you know what I mean? Like, is it a different level of... Not so much based on age, Raquel. It's really just based based on, you know, what it might be a little bit different for you because your receptors are a little kind of flatter than because as we, the longer, you know, we are menopausal, those receptors that I spoke about before, you know, they go from this and they kind of just, they, they dead in or flatten. I don't know exactly the right way to put it. They can be woken up yeah, again. They can be right? restored. So that to that degree, you know, you might need say more robust levels, uh, you know, to create the stimulus Kristen to open be, them up. So Kristen may be able to like start with like lower levels, but then even beyond that, it really should be individualized to how do you feel Mm -hmm. and 
what levels are we aiming for in the blood okay. and stuff like that. Well, we wanted to briefly touch upon diet too with you yeah. all, because I know you talk a lot about protein. And of course, Raquel is a personal trainer and we're big on strength training, of course, here, but we'd love to know your thoughts on that and how that can impact our health. Well, it's, I mean, it, to us, it's the number one lowest hanging fruit and the easiest intervention and every woman should be intentional about it. I mean, I think we float through our 20s and 30s. Many of us ride off genetic, ride off good mm -hmm. fortune, you know, et cetera. But the break all hit for all of us at some point with the hormone loss. And so how do we mitigate that, right? How do we create the healthiest environment for our body, whether or not we choose hormone replacement therapy? Nutrition, it's your single part biggest intervention. It all starts with food. It's always going to come down to food. So what we see with women too often is because they're seeing the body composition shift happening, they kind of lean into the less is more approach, less eating, more cardiovascular or cardio-based exercise. Worst thing we could possibly do. We're going to absolutely tax our adrenals. We're going to, you know, put the body in sort of a fight or flight, like, oh my God, it's starving me. And it's asking me to do Orange Theory Fitness every day. What is happening? So <laughs> <laughs> what we need to do is be like, no, no, put the body back in a safe environment. And that's going to mean eating enough, but then also eating to optimize muscle. And that's going to mean eating enough animal protein. So the biggest thing for a lot of women is they think between protein and strength training, they're going to become bulky. And I'm sure Raquel can tell you, yeah. she yeah. has very few bulky 60 and 70 year olds walking around the gym. It's just yeah. impossible. So what we need to do though, is provide the body with the substrates. That's going to be the amino acids that we get primarily from animal protein. And then we need to put it under, you know, conditions in order to stimulate a muscle response, i.e. strength train. That is the winning combination. And Maria and I try and tell women all the time, even if we can't convince you that hormones are not dangerous, your daily life choices are the number one driver, your health. So focus on your diet, focus on your lifestyle. You know, it should not be difficult. We just make it much difficult because, and Marie and I laugh, we don't laugh, but this big ozempic craze and the semaglutide and the GLP-1 agonists that are being thrown about to help women lose anywhere from, you know, 80 pounds to 10 pounds. Look, if you have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes and you're morbidly obese and you have tried every intervention and it's not working, there can be sort of an endocrine disruption that may benefit from something like one of these drugs. But the vast majority of midlife women are under eating. The last thing you need is an appetite suppressant. The last sure, thing. Yeah. I mean, Marie and I work so hard to get women to eat enough. And they look at you like, oh, I don't know about that. I'm like, look, you just came to us at five foot one and 200 pounds living off of coffee, a chicken breast and a salad. And you're trying to tell <laughs> us that if you eat more, you're going to gain weight. That's just not possible. So it's, you know, getting women to kind of embrace food as their biggest tool, love it again, cook again. And we get it. Marie and I had seven kids, boys. I mean, our grocery bills were insane and our kitchens were constantly on, right? So I get how women get to their 50s and they're like, I don't have to cook for anyone. Like I don't have to deal with this anymore. But ladies, you do, you matter, right? Like it still matters. We still matter. So yeah, food's a huge thing for us. Yeah. And also, I guess my other question would be like, how much protein? Because that is confusing too. Everyone's saying different number, you know, amounts. It's a lot more than maybe we think we need. That's confusing. Well, I eat about 135 grams a day. Some days 130. And Kristen, I think is 150. Yeah. Okay. That is a lot of protein for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't count a single ounce of plant protein. I do eat some plant proteins, but I don't count them. I don't see them as really all that relevant because at the end of the day, as we age, we have something called anabolic resistance. Our ability to make use of protein gets lowered every year that we age. So the more we can eat, it's not like you're actually necessarily synthesizing all 150 grams or 130 grams. It's probably a little bit less than that. And that's one of the reasons why overshooting is perfectly fine.
fine. It's also incredibly satiating the energy. I mean, these women who are like, well, I'm getting 25 to 30 grams of protein a day in a meal. And Maria and I are like, that's great. You're actually ahead of most women if you're actually getting those numbers. However, you're also 57 and you strength train. Could you maybe aim for 45 to 50 grams in a meal? And they'll be like, and they'll kind of fight us. And then finally they'll give in. And the messages that Maria and I get are like, oh my God, I feel amazing. I have so much energy. My brain is clear. My mood is better. I'm not anxious anymore. And we're like, so it sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. Um, you know, the numbers you hear thrown around are anywhere from 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight. It's not a number that people are plucking out of the sky. It's not a fad right now. It's based on muscle protein synthesis, the needs for something called leucine, a particular amino acid. We need at least two and a half grams at any given meal. That's going to equate to approximately 30 grams or 35 grams per animal protein, you know, quantity at any given meal. So, you know, how do you do that? I mean, Maria, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a smoothie and I had a meat Maria, stuff. Maria, I so... hate it when you say I had a smoothie because I know what your smoothies are and I know what everyone else's smoothies are. So could you okay. please stop I it? Had a... <laughs> yes, I had a protein-centric smoothie with whey protein and some berries and some peanut butter. So it is low to moderate carbohydrate, more low because berries are pretty low. It is probably about 40 grams of whey protein. 40 grams of protein of is, whey. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a lot. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm just picky today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's really not, but it's liquid. It really comes down to liquid. I won't tell you everything I put in it, but I just the protein is the most important. And then I had a meat stick because I usually, not all the time, but I usually like to have something to chew on as well, not just drink. So that gives me another six grams of super high quality protein. So again, probably totaled about 45 Did you say a meat stick? Yeah, they're really yeah. good. It's Paleo a meat Valley stick. Meat sticks. Like, like, yeah. Which brand do you use? Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley. Yes, I love that brand as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're great. Super they're great. yummy. I like that idea mm -hmm. because I don't like a smoothie too because I don't have anything to chew and sometimes I don't right. feel totally satisfied. So that is a great tip. And I like smoothies even less in the winter. So I'm going to start to move away. Famous from last words. I've heard her yeah. say this for last month. <laughs> No, I, 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 got a, I need to get an egg poacher. Anyway, so well, yeah. That's um, the thing is women yeah. will think, well, I had two eggs and a piece of toast with some bacon. Okay, well, let's add that up. Each egg is six grams of protein. Yeah. So now we're at 12. Bacon's maybe two to three grams of protein. Might've had two slices. Okay, so now we're at 16 grams of protein. It's not enough. That might be enough for a pre-workout for me. That's not my breakfast, you know? I'm gonna have two chicken apple sausages. I'm gonna have six ounce cup of, you know, Siggy's low sugar Greek or skier yogurt. And then I'm gonna throw in a scoop of whey protein, some frozen berries, and maybe a little crunchy streusel or something. I, that's 50 some grams of protein. And nobody, it literally fits on a teacup saucer. So you can't say that, oh my God, that's a lot of protein because what people hear then is it's a lot of volume of food, right? And I think because of the carnivore diet coming in and out of vogue is that we have a lot of people think that high protein means we're eating T-bones for breakfast. Not the case, right? At all. Tonight, even for dinner, I think I'm making like a pork panko uh, crusted cod fillets. You know, we'll have some of that fish is a great source of protein that is like a little protein bomb it's like yeah too. scallops light light. and yeah. shrimp i mean you know so have a burger and throw some shrimp on your plate or whatever and if you love to cook which both marie and i do you know there's plenty of ways to do it you just have to kind of be intentional and i think that's what a lot right. of women are just sort of you know dialing it in a little bit autopilot when they go into the kitchen and i will share these two things so chris 
and I don't know about you, but in the summer, like walking around the area that I used to, that we both at one point together lived in the same area and you'd, you'd see like groups of women sitting outside, like having lunch, right? And they would have like these huge salads and maybe a little bit of, you know, animal protein on the side or piled on top a small amount. And they think, you know, they think, oh, it's healthy. Mm -hmm. It's virtuous as plants. And again, Kristen and I have nothing against plants, but it took me a while to realize that I actually, for me, and probably many other women too, had to dial down the plants, get more protein in. So that's number one. So you may have to just adjust the things, you know, downward that you think are healthy and that you enjoy. And I love fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. right? I would never take them out, but they were too much. You know, the fiber can be filling, right? And that has good and bad properties. Bad is, you know, is that you don't eat the protein that you need, right? Because right? you already feel right. full, right? So that's one thing. And the second thing, again, for me to get to 135 grams of protein, could I do it all real chewable food, steaks and chicken and you know, for me, if I hit 30 grams of protein in a meal, I will have like a quarter of a cup of beans and count that and uh, dairy and eggs and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I absolutely could, but it's really a challenge. Mm -hmm. So for me and for many other women, I think Kristen, yeah. you as well, because you're stirring that way into your yogurt to get that really nice bump up. Protein powders are- That's good are to thing. keep in mind. And be yeah, and before anybody comes at us with, oh, well, it's processed. Okay, well, show me someone that eats zero processed anything. And there's degrees right. of Process, and it's not right? an all or nothing right? mindset. No, no. Yeah. And, and don't make yeah. your entire diet whey protein either, right? Like that's not a good thing. Oh, You're yeah. going to lose your digestive ability if you're drinking your food every day. Joyless. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And you know what yeah. I think is, I and you guys are totally inspiring me because I, I had mentioned this to Kristen, my Kristen. <laughs> and uh, I want to create a post showing women what does 50, you know, grams of protein meal look like, like suggestions, because I think that's a huge loss. Like, oh my gosh, there are probably thinking like I'd have to eat like two steaks and you know just whatever comes to that you know when you think of it and I think that it's like yourself in the foot before you even get started just yeah. by the overwhelmingness right. of I don't even know what does that look like how do I do that so we got to do that Kristen we're going to do yeah. a post about one of yeah, our favorite lunches a can of like wild caught salmon from Costco mm. easy peasy with yes. a little bit of you know mayo or Greek yogurt and then uh, like a hard-boiled egg chopped up in it and maybe some feta or goat cheese on top of it. Boom. You're at 45, 50 yeah. grams of protein. That's nothing. I'm still hungry after that. You know, that's so easy. Yeah. That's yeah, what we that's need. Fantastic. We need easy yes. because we can't be overthinking too much. We have a lot on right. our plates. And But I love your suggestion too. Even when you were talking about the restaurant, like you could just ask for double chicken in the restaurant, like on the salad. Cause you're, they, they do give you such small portions. It's so true. Yeah. I always ask them to make the salad a side salad and double the protein. And you know, they look at you yeah. like, are you, are you sure? You know, I think they think <laughs> women are immediately going to go plant-based vegan and ask for, you know, my dressing on the side and no protein. And I'm like, double the protein, make the salad side size. And they're like, oh, okay. And my husband just giggles because he's like, you literally eat more than me half the time. And I'm like, yeah, well, that is Maria. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, being mindful of our time today, we just wanted to ask you both if you could each give one simple tip a mom could do today to kind of start dialing in their hormonal health. Well, I'm going to kind of be somewhat repetitive and say, you know, to eat the protein. I know it sounds like I'm taking the easy way out, but even knowing this for years, it took me, it just took me a long time to really implement. And I want to save people the, you know, I just want to save people the doubt and the one 
wondering and the curiosity and the just not getting to it. You know, it's not difficult, but you do have to be intentional about it. And that is extremely important. And it is something that I wish I would have done, you know, over the last 10 years and not just like over the last two years. Yeah. So focus on protein. And once you've focused on that protein and got the eggs, the meat, whatever, you know, the dairy, the Greek yogurt in, then add in your whatever else you want to eat in that particular meal or in that day. Yeah, that's great. I won't take the easy way out, but I will as an aside say, dump your Peloton, dump your Orange Theory Fitness, dump all that stuff, start training with Raquel. A. B would be (laughs) watch your nervous system. I think this is one of the biggest things that as we go into perimenopause, we can make it worse. The scrolling, you know, the staying up too late. I get it. I mean, we had lots of kids busy and some of them will say, well, I can't go to bed at a decent time because my kids are up late. Yeah, you can. And you can start to shift what your kids need to, you know, your kids need sleep as well. And just because again, it's normal for teenagers to be up late, uh, doesn't mean it's optimal, but it's the, you know, working on sort of being mindful of what you're engaging with and how it's sort of upregulating that nervous system, because stress is going to be the number one derailer of your hormones and make your perimenopausal journey 10 times worse. So, you know, finding ways to offload it, whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, whether it's gratitude journaling, whether it's taking a long walk at night, you know, as the sun's going down, you know, it doesn't have to be the dry brushing and the skincare and the baths. Those are great. If that does it for you, that works. For me, I'd be like sitting in the bathtub worrying about my grocery list, not an optimal environment. So, you know, really starting to be mind, you know, put the phone down and put it away. I mean, we have great technology at our hands, but there's also great controls on this thing. I have something that at nine o'clock comes and turns my whole phone into a brick. Okay. So if, even if we don't have the controls, we do have tools to do these things. So be mindful of your nervous system. If, you know, kids are challenging, we get it. Both Maria and I did not get through, you know, having kids in our 20s, their 20s and 30s now without a lot of hiccups and other things too. So it's not to say that we expect you to have no stress. It's learn to manage that stress, learn to mitigate it, you know, breathing exercises, going into counseling, talking with your spouse, reading good book, you know, something that just says, I am in control of how I respond to my environment. We may not be in control of the environment, but we can be in control of how we respond to it. And I know that's like totally not sounding hormonal, but trust us, stress is going to absolutely derail your hormonal experience if you don't get a handle on it now. So that would be mine. Great tip. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say I loved, I thought those were two perfect, very powerful tips for us women, you know, looking at our protein intake and Mm. taking care of that stress level and finding some type of routine or having just looking, you know, maybe taking an assessment of all the different tools because a tool that you use for a couple of days you might get sick of and you have other tools that you can use you know yeah. like when you said last night I went for a walk with my dogs and we went to this field and I just laid there and I just looked as it started getting dark and I was just looking at the stars and just the sky and the moon and the trees and just like being it was like amazing and I could feel myself like just, you know, sinking into myself. And it was such a, and I hadn't done that in a minute. Yeah. We forget the basics, right? I mean, I got a puppy last year and I remember calling Maria about three months into it. And I was like, I am sleeping like a dead person. Like I can't even (laughs) believe how good my sleep is. Well, what was happening? I'm up at 5am with this tiny little golden retriever barefoot in my pajamas walking around in the yard as the sun came up. Who knew that was like the best biohack in the world, right? (laughs) So it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be 
indulgent. It doesn't have to be time sucking. It can be really simple like your walk with your dogs at night. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you. So you can connect with Kristen and Maria on Instagram at wise underscore and underscore well underscore and visit their website at www.wiseandwell.me. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Thanks for having so us. Wonderful. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purpose of diagnosing, curing, treating, or preventing any disease. We are functional medicine certified health coaches and not licensed medical professionals. The opinions and advice of guests are their own and also not considered to be medical advice. Always consult with a healthcare professional when making any healthy lifestyle changes. We would love to hear from you. Please leave a comment or review. Email us at info at functionalmoms.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button.